Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage, your twice-weekly and sometimes thrice-weekly fry-up of politics and public affairs. I'm Martin Pierce. Democracy Sausage is a production of Policy Forum at Crawford School of Public Policy in cahoots with our friends at the Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations here at the Australian National University. So what have we learned this week? Well, National Cabinet decided that the best way to reach agreement on things was to do away with the pesky need to come to a consensus. Scott Morrison said consensus politics sets the Federation up to fail and that they would evolve away from consensus-based decision-making. Most of the states have agreed, however, to a new roadmap that would focus on testing regimes and look to have almost all state borders, with the exception of Western Australia, reopened by Christmas. That pressure to get the economy moving again ramped up after the Australian Bureau of Statistics snapshot last week showed the biggest quarterly contraction on record, 7%, confirming that the country is in recession for the first time in 30 years. In a bunch of graphs showing the kind of dropping off of of a cliff that is somewhat reminiscent of the quality of this pod while I've been standing in for Mark Kenny, we saw the full extent of that slowdown. Spending on services down 17%, consumption by households down 12%, a 41% increase in social assistance benefits and the household saving to income ratio rising to nearly 20%. So people aren't just feeling the impacts of the grinding economy, they're also nervous for the future. A lot of our political language at the moment focuses on movement, roadmaps, direction of travel and so on. But right now the vehicle we're in doesn't appear to be moving or at least not in the right direction. 
And talking of vehicles, on the bus with me today are three outstanding experts. Coming up a little later, we're going to be speaking to Peter Martin. But right now, as passengers, we have Katrine Beauregard and, of course, Maria Tuflaga. No Mark Kenny. He'll be back this week with the extra on Friday. But not everyone has to get on the bus for the bus to leave the station. But it is important the Democracy Sausage bus leaves the station. So let's get moving and introduce our first two panellists. Dr. Katrine Beauregard is a senior lecturer at the ANU School of Politics and International Relations. Hello, Katrine. Hi. And, of course, Dr. Maria Taflaga is director of the ANU Australian Politics Studies Centre. Maria, what do you think about that thing that Scott Morrison talked about after National Cabinet on Friday, this, this idea that consensus politics sets the Federation up to fail? Is the Federation failing? No, no. I, I guess I have two two main thoughts about this comment by Morrison. The first is, well, this is just sort of real politic. Um, Scott Morrison faces the dilemma that he cannot make sovereign states do things that he doesn't have constitutional powers to make them do, or he doesn't want to wear the political opprobrium of making them try or trying to make them to do things that they don't want to do. Um, but this idea that the Federation is failing, I think this is a really kind of weird um, kind of narrative that has persisted long well before the the pandemic, you know, for, for a good, um, you know, century even um, around uh, the, the federation in this country, which I think is actually a really Eastern state-centric uh, view of uh, how the federation should work. I think if you don't live on the Eastern seaboard of this country, you probably don't necessarily like the fact that especially New South Wales and Melbourne, are likely to dominate decision-making. And I think what we're kind of seeing here is actually a return uh, to to a more normal kind of relationship between the Federation and the states and federal government within that, in that, that they have different interests and, of course, will, you know, want to uh, pursue and um, articulate those. I, if I, I can jump in, I yes. think it's a very good point. And I think if you go back to the, what the basic of what a federation is for is to allow states to enact their own policy based on their own spe- specific or different, uh, not so much interest, but situation. And I think that when it comes to virus, we see different states are in different place and will need to adopt different types of policy. And that is why we have at a basic a federation to allow that sort of variation in policy and responses between the state. And that's just normal that things are different in different states because that's just a federation, basically. Yeah. So I'm- I just want to point in a bit of a... <laughs> how a federation works here. Sorry, Maria. No, no, no. I mean, I think this is actually a really good point, um, Katrin. So for those of you out there in listener land don't know, Katrin is Canadian. And um, <laughs> I was thinking of saying it, but I was like, no. Oh, you should have said it. I have Australian it. citizenship now. It's true. She she is Canadian-Australian, everyone. So, you know. Um, she, she or is it Australian-Canadian? Yeah, it's Australian-Canadian. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh, okay. It's my first country. I live oh, here. Well, there you go. Oh, wow. True patriot, Katrin Beauregard, sitting opposite <laughs> me. So, I guess what I want to know is, yeah, how how has how has this sort of federation discussion been going down in in Canada during the? Pandemic? I think we haven't seen the equivalent of a national cabinet. I think each province is in charge of dealing with the responses and have been dealing with it individually. The the Canadian what we've seen more from the federal government is the chief medical officer who's doing a bit similarly to the equivalent here in Australia, who gives advice and tells 
simulation makes roadmap, but in the end of the day, the province in Canada are uh, much more decentralized than in Australia and have a lot more leeway. So uh, we see 12 different responses to the virus with not much coordination happening. But And there's this idea of like we all have to come together and agree on policy. Never really happened in Canada. Uh, there's a lot more fight uh, in, that, in different provinces as different interests and different needs and have all in, in, in all policy areas. So we haven't seen that much of a coordination happening in Canada versus compared to Australia. So what about um, Trudeau? Has, has Trudeau sort of um, had the problem, I guess, that Scott Morrison has where he he clearly is frustrated by the fact that he mm. cannot be, I guess, the decider. Yeah, I think Trudeau, well, a few things happened. Trudeau had its own scandal that didn't really have anything to do with coronavirus that had to do with a nepotism and awarding of government contract about charity organization without the proper submission. So for a lot of weeks, he was distracted with that. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I think so. I think what happens is he's been quite quiet. He has to be dealing with other things than the coronavirus. And I think he's been mostly put forward the medical side, right? The chief medical officer, I think, been making the news internationally this week about a recommendation about what types of sex people should be having, right? So that sort of thing. What? You missed that one? I, I think yes. you need to tell us more about what? this. What, the what types of sex should people be having? said that people should be wearing masks during intercourse. What? <laughs> Okay, I mean, are you, that made I, international, and I, I thought you guys had heard of it here in Australia. That kind of was, yeah. So basically, that's just hilarious that that's kind of the the federal response has been more uh, medical based and sometimes quite hilariously medical based. I mean, it's not like to defend the chief medical officer. I think she was kind of just answering a question from a journalist about what would right? be ideal. How how have Canadians responded to the suggestion? <laughs> really funny the thing it's most people quite laughed about it <laughs> i mean you're already in, often in the same like house or, or bubble but okay. yeah but if you're unfortunately living by yourself um, and yeah. needs to meet someone right yeah right, it can be quite a long time before you are well, vaccinated on and you're allowed to date again so practical solution needs well, isn't to that be- isn't that the point of the sort of like one person bubble thing you know i guess but yes okay enough on this this. (laughs) no no what i what i think is actually kind of interesting about uh, scott morrison's language i suppose like he's used this term evolution um i mean the national cabinet was very much um something he kind of created as a way to um allow himself to be kind of involved in decisions that are not necessarily ones that were easy for him to sort of influence. Um, it's been a very effective tool at him being able to claim credit for things that have gone well and obviously to to step back and not be at the scene of the crime, so to speak, when things don't go well at all, which if you actually look at Scott Morrison's career is something he is extremely adept at, not being seen to be the one with the fingerprints on, on the button but always two steps nearby. Um, and so, you know, this this uh, national cabinet has been touted as such a sort of success, particularly by the, the press gallery, which is, I think, one of the reasons why now that we're just sort of seeing a return to normal, it's, you know, this, this language of failure or, you know, the Federation is in trouble is kind of emerging, which I'd really encourage listeners to sort of like really interrogate and think about seriously. And so it kind of makes sense that he would have to use 
words like evolution because this is a structure he set up and it's now no longer allowing him to kind of succeed or to deliver what he wants to do. So it's got to evolve. I, I think it's kind of interesting that he has sort of said that consensus um, sets the Federation up to fail, which, you know, on on like the sort of pure political grounds is is kind of right in a way. Like the whole point of the Federation is not only to allow competition but allow states to go their, their own um, ways. And it's an interesting kind of, I guess, framing exercise because, again, it kind of allows him to apportion blame for the fact that this sort of emergency structure that he set up, which was probably only going to work in the context of a crisis because it was for a crisis to manage a immediate crisis, has now kind of um, is now sort of falling by the wayside, just as it as it should, because it's not designed to go forward into the future, despite the hyperbole that surrounded it. Now, there's lots to talk about in the economy, but I thought we'd save that for part two. But as we've got you here, Katrine, I'm particularly keen to pick up on a couple of things which are your research interests. And one of those is this idea about women in politics. I mean, we have seen some strong performances from female leaders in the coronavirus crisis, in particular Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand has received plaudits for her handling of the crisis. And you contrast that with what Crawford School Director Helen Sullivan has described as the reckless leadership of people like Donald Trump and and Brazil's uh, Jair Bolsonaro. Um, Has the crisis revealed anything about the different leadership styles of men and women? I think we, oh, that's a tough one because I think my personal opinion is that I think these news stories are a bit overhyped, to be honest. Uh, I think, uh, so I think in one hand, uh, we're picking with a few examples to try to make a general conclusion, which might not. It's be. a very small sample. It's a size. very small sample size, so it's really difficult. And there's a lot of other factors that we need to take into account, right? So, uh, New Zealand is an island, which quite is helpful when you're trying to stop uh, a virus from coming in. Same story in Taiwan, who has a female president, who's also been doing very well, also an island, right? So there's a lot of other factors we need to think uh, when we're trying to explain why it seems that women are actually uh, doing uh, better. I think where gender does matter is I do think that things like healthcare tends to be viewed as female policy domain, right? And we automatically kind of trust women for dealing with things that are related to healthcare, right? So that's just, there's quite a bit of literature that kind of tend to view this as uh, male men deals with the economy, women deals with healthcare, education, like more softer kind of policy domain. And because we are in a health crisis, right, we might actually perceive female, we trust them more, or we know that they're actually are doing a, a better job at it. So I think that's kind of uh, important to remember here. And I do not think, I think there's been also good policy response for men too. <laughs> I think and we have to to think about it too, right? It, what, whatever we think of Scott Morrison, I think things are really good in Australia. Very, yeah, the data says so. Yeah. yeah, things are really, really well here, right? Nothing compared to the United States, right? Or, or Brazil or the UK, right? So I think we need to be careful a little bit more and look at to what other things that might... Uh, Has there been any research lately, Katrin, about, um, you know, the sort of, I guess, institutional arrangements in countries that are more likely to elect female leaders. Yeah, I think that's you you you've uh, pointed to the right thing here is that uh the country that elect more likely to elect women are also 
tends to have other characteristic that makes them deal with the pandemic better, right? So they tend to be well-off country, money is helpful, right? A good, what we call state capacity. So good healthcare system will be well-funded, uh, easily available for people, right? Well-organization, that helps when you have to deal with the pandemic. Uh, what also helps is actually having... Uh, Government being able to do things, right, like set up hospital, get PPE equipment, get the things that need to be done, organize things. So that's in these types of countries, for whatever reason, tend to be also more likely to elect women, right? So it's not necessarily the women themselves who are uh, changing the way their countries works, but it's just kind of are using those state capacity to respond to a very un unexpected crisis. Right. So, I mean, I guess a way of being glib about it is we could say the media coverage might be drawing the arrow in the wrong direction. Yeah. It's a nice story. And I think it's, and in some way you have to ask yourself, why are such a big news? Are we like all kind of shocked that women are doing their job properly? Right. And I think that's a bit, we have to question a bit that narrative is like, well, are we like, oh, the we're so surprised that the women are doing well because we're kind of expecting women to be terrible at this. But and when you see that all the the, the research is tend to point out that to be a politician, a female politician, and to be a female leader, you have to be extremely good and even better than the man, right? To actually, because you're much more likely to be to have your qualification question qualification too many cues, sorry, qualification questions uh, by everyone else if you're a woman in politics and if you're a man, so you tend to be a lot more. Better. So it's not surprising that women are doing well because it's actually quite hard for them to be there, right? Selection bias. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about uh, what about women's broader participation mm -hmm. in the political process? I mean, I talked in the introduction about the recession, yeah. and we know that that's not going to hit us all equally. It could well hit women harder than yeah. it hits men. What effect might the coming recession have on women's participation in the political process? Yeah, that's it's a bit hard to to say with all the data, but it seems to be that women are hit a lot more harder by the economic crisis uh, than men. So they're much more likely to lose their jobs, right, than uh, men. And they're also wh how, what we know about households' division of labor is that women are more likely to take care of children. And that, and the fact that in a lot of countries, schools are still closed. So that means a lot more work for women. Basically, you have to do your own job and you have to do an extra job of teaching your children to on top of it, which basically means that, uh, or it could mean very negative things for women in politics in terms of if, uh, well, doing politics takes time, right? So if you have less time and, and money and money, it takes days. time, it takes money and you have less of it, you're much less likely to be uh, engaged in the political process. And uh, what I would be interesting in keeping track of is the impact that's going to have on just how women, how you just feel about politics. And if you're becoming more, if women become more disengaged with it, which will have uh, consequences on, uh, yes, running for office, but just joining political parties or being involved in their own community or school, parent school teaching association, that sort of thing, right? Is that uh, basically what we've seen, generally speaking, outside of a, a pandemic. So the research I'm going to talk has not dealt yet with the pandemic, but it's basically that there's an impact between the types of policy the government is doing and how you feel about the government, right? So basically, if the 
government is responding to your problems and your needs, right, you might be more likely to be involved in the government, right? So things like, uh, so there's research in the United States about Medicare, for example, if you have, if suddenly gets Medicare, medical assistance, you will feel better about the government provide, right? Because you it provides you for a need, right? So if the government does not response to uh, the problems that the women are facing in, in this pandemic, they it might negatively impact how they view the government and makes them withdraw for it, which will have an impact on running for office, obviously, but also on just the regular things that people do to be involved, which impact the uh, it's a pathway that we call it for office, right? It's just you first you need to f- be interested, you need to be involved, and you start being involved in your community, and then you do all the things that leads up to uh, to Getting politics. The so the, the danger here, I think, is it might just take the women entirely off the path. That might be a problem here. But that, again, it's just speculation, right? Well, it will be interesting to see how things yeah. go. I think one of the things I really wish we had data on, and I, I don't mm. think we do, and please correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but I guess I really want to know um, how um, women who are probably, I guess, unlikely to participate in, in politics very much but uh, do vote, um, you know, how they might be reacting to this pandemic, you know, I mean, are they primarily concerned that they're, they're you know, uh, we're thinking about the average kind of archetype of the sort of voter that most politicians think about, which is a middle-class family with children, you know, are, are they concerned about that their husband maintain employment so they can, you know, basically stay at home and do homeschooling? Or are they enraged <laughs> that they have all of these extra duties and a triple shift? I haven't seen any systematic data of it. I only see anecdotal data, which is the women being enraged. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think again, in the Australia, we're quite very lucky in terms of childcare stayed open, right? And yeah. even childcare was free for a little while, right? Would that yeah. mitigate these kind of issue here? And I what I've seen in other countries, especially in the United States, where there's very little social debt and basically women have to quit their job to take care of their children. It's the enragement and the Yeah. Yeah. And it's again, it's only adaptable. It'll be I mean, in the next few years we'll see really much the impact. The actual impact, yeah. That has. Okay, we do need to take a break in a second, but before we get there, there is one other question I'd like to address to you, Maria, which is around Truth in political advertising. The ACT government has expressed in principle support for enforcing truth in political advertising. It sounds good on paper, but is something like that actually workable? Ah, uh, yeah. So we have had uh, truth in legislate uh, truth in advertising laws uh, at the federal level in the past. Uh, the very glorious years of 1983 to 1984, uh, which I think is a <laughs> was good- it even a whole year? <laughs> it was. It was. It was. It was early in 83 and late in 84, um, uh, which sort of gives an. I think the Hawke government brought them in and then very summarily got rid of them, uh, which I think is a good hint about. Um, why these things are so um, fraught uh, uh, because it's ultimately usually the electoral commission that has to arbitrate over, um, you know, whether or not political parties that fund them are lying. <laughs> um, so um, I, I do think, though, that it is a really good – it's a good principle and it's the kind of thing that would actually really depend on the model 
of how the regular how how any form of regulation in this area was kind of established as to whether or not it would work well because what you definitely don't want is a situation where um whatever body you set up or the electoral commission feels kind of compromised in having to make these decisions and um, I think it's one of the things that Australians kind of have come to appreciate because we spend so much time looking at the United States, but we have one of the world's best electoral regulatory frameworks, despite its many flaws. <laughs> um, and um, so, you know, I think this is really good in principle, but the design has to be good lest you tarnish the reputation of the AEC. And of course, a big element of, uh, of trust in political parties is transparency from political parties. Exactly. And, and that includes political donations where there's also been some news over the last week. Oh, yes. Yeah. So last week, um, yes, the Labor and the Liberal Party, um, effectively have agreed to deal with, um, some, uh, a high court ruling that ruled in favor of Queensland laws to limit donations from property developers. And this sort of has impacts on, uh, I guess, federal donation requirements. And essentially what the two major parties have agreed to is, uh, to sort of, uh, tweak laws so that there now is a gray area where donations made above the state cap but below the federal cap i don't know what the queensland um donation cap is but the federal cap is fourteen thousand three hundred dollars so it's it's a lot of money you can donate before you actually have to say i maria tuflaga donated money to the labor party um and so and and you know and i mean like this is against transparency. We are, we have a really terrible electoral transparency donation framework in this country. It doesn't report for a year and a half until after donations oh, have been made. I didn't yes. know that. Yes, it's bad. And and yeah, like this this threshold of fourteen thousand three hundred dollars is is huge. Quite high. That's a lot of money that you can donate without having to declare anything. And so what tends to happen is is that donors might donate. Um, little pots of money or money under the threshold to all of the state divisions of each one of these major parties and, and we never know that they've donated this, this money. Um, and that is another major sort of, um, problem with transparency, um, in politics and one that is actually relatively easy to resolve. And, and to be blunt, I'm kind of surprised that Labor agreed to do this given that their own policy position is to actually reduce the threshold. You're not cynic enough. I'm not cynical <laughs> enough. You're right. You're right. But, um, yes, I wonder why Labor is colluding on this. Hmm. But, um, yes, yes, it could be to do with the fact that they like money too. <laughs> so we said it. Politics is expensive. Expensive, it right? is expensive. You're relying on yeah. donation. It's good to see I still have some optimism and idealism left in me. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, look, the Democracy Sausage Bus is uh, pulling in to its next stop and our passengers, Katrine and Maria, will be disembarking at the stop. But we will we'll be picking another passenger in Piedemar. And so join us after the break where we'll have a bit of a chat about uh, those that latest news around the Australian economy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Now, welcome back. Katrine and Maria have got off the bus, but we have a new passenger on the economic bus. It is Peter Martin, of course. Peter Martin AM, an Australian economist and journalist and the business and economy editor for The Conversation. I thought, Peter, that we would dig into the economic snapshot figures that came out last week in the second part of the podcast. We now know that we're in a recession for the first time in nearly 30 years. In big picture terms, what did we learn from the ABS snapshot on Wednesday? We learned, I guess, Martin, that we're in the first part of the V, the downward part, and it's steep. Boy, is it steep. In fact, it's almost vertical. Now, that doesn't mean that it'll be almost vertical. It'll be a sharp V going out. But... um, Look, uh, the recession that began in 1929 wasn't like this, and neither were any of the others. So if you, if you look at economic growth, it increased or it, it fell in the March quarter, that's the uh, the first three months of the year, fell by about half a percent, not by much, but uh, all you need for it to be a recession or called a recession is two quarters of neg- negative economic growth. This time it fell by 7%. Now, None of the other recessions, from peak to trough, they've usually fallen a percent or or so. This is what happens when you put the economy to sleep, when you you shut down lots of jobs. But also uh, it was, as we saw in the March quarter, because that was before the restrictions came in, also uh, it's the result of understandable caution. I mean, people weren't going to cinemas (laughs) in, in the weeks before the shutdown. Uh, quite sensibly, right? And, and you know, they, they weren't going to cafes, they weren't going to restaurants, just as in Sweden, right? They, they didn't need to be told. And, and Sweden has had a, a similar uh, restriction. Now, other countries which managed the coronavirus worse, in fact, by having less severe shutdowns, so uh, the UK, their economy collapsed in the same quarter, 20%. Uh, the US, uh, 9%, uh, n- you know, nearly 10%. Um, we, by our management, obviously the the fact that we're an island um, helps and that we're a long way away from other places helps. But through our management, um, we've made this not as bad as it might be. The, the Treasurer said his advice earlier in the year was it might be 20% collapse like Britain. It hasn't been that the big part of that has been JobKeeper. So um, people, uh, households on one measure, on another measure is not the case, but on one measure, household income has held up because while people haven't been getting as much money uh, in the ways you might expect because they don't have any work to do, they're at least getting a reasonable pay from JobKeeper and uh, people on uh, unemployment benefits, used to be called New Start, now called JobSeeker, they're, um, they're getting twice as much um, as they used to. So that has kept our incomes up and that's uh, prevented the worst. But having said that, our spending's uh, collapsed. Now, the question is, and uh, you're about to ask this question, I guess, 
what happens from here on? So the, the downside of the V is extreme, almost vertical. The question is, what's going to happen next? So what do you think that next quarter will look like? Are we, are we headed towards the same kind of contraction as, as you said, in the UK? They, their economy contracted by 20% over the last quarter. Are we headed for that? The government says no. The uh, Treasury's advice to the Treasurer their best guess is that uh, economic growth will be about zero. You know, it might be negative 1%, might be positive uh, 1%. But that, uh, and you're seeing it already, you're seeing retail spending is bouncing up, uh, not as much in Victoria, but um, it's bouncing up everywhere in those places in Australia where we can move about. I went to the cinema on Saturday night. I didn't think I ever would again, right? So um, things are returning to something like normal. Now, if if the government's right, then um, <clears throat> I guess it would be a, a, a very sta- uh, sharp V. There are reasons to fear the government's wrong. Um, this is it. As I said, our incomes are more or less holding up on one measure. On another measure, they're not. But, um, you know, most households have, have still got money coming in. They're not spending it. Now, these figures are historical. They're up to the middle of the year. So uh, they tell us what was happening then. But um, household saving, I've looked at the household saving ratio every quarter for uh, more years than I can imagine. And, uh, you know, sometimes it gets as high as 5%. Uh, during the global financial crisis, it got as high as 10%. Um, during the early 2000s, when everyone was eating into their mortgages, you know, with those redraw things, it was actually negative. That is to say, households were spending more money than they earned each month. But um, 10% is about the worst you, you would have expected in modern times or the, the biggest saving you would have expected in modern times. It's jumped to 20%. Now, on another measure... Uh, because uh, the, the standard measure doesn't take into account these special circumstances, which is people are getting income from new sources, including uh, eating into their super funds, um, on uh, a broader measure that the Bureau has introduced, which it calls the household experience saving ratio, which sounds like this is what it feels like. Um, it's a uh, 25% or 24.8%. So unbelievably... Never before. I don't know about the Great Recession. I don't know about the Depression because uh, the figures weren't collected then. But unbelievably, one in every $4 coming into a household, on average, could be your household, could be mine, one in every $4 is being saved. The question is why. It could be because of what I was talking about. Um, The opportunities weren't there, aren't there in Melbourne at the moment to go to plays, to go to football matches, things like that. So um, the opportunities aren't there to spend or it might be because people are scared. If people are scared, if people's behaviour has changed, the question is, will it change back? Now, uh, neurologists, neuroscientists say it it takes about eight weeks to learn a new behaviour. We've had that. What if people have learnt that new behaviour, have learnt that they don't need to spend anything like they did? Um, It's entirely possible that that's the case. Um, Our living standards are, we don't realise it year to year, but our living standards are so much higher 
than they were decades ago, we probably can get by, and indeed we've learned to get by, spending a lot less than we did. What if this behaviour sticks? If this behaviour sticks, and it's perfectly rational for a household to save, you know, that they don't know what's around the corner and that they've learnt that they don't need to spend what they did. If this behaviour sticks, it's a disaster for the economy, a complete disaster. And this is one of the least understood things in economics. The least understood thing is that the economy needs different things to households. It makes sense for a household to save, right? You know, I thought those households were stupid when they were spending more than they earned back then. We, we, better saving for the future makes sense. Even in a country, um, you know, with unemployment benefits and uh, Medicare and so on. Um, for an economy, it doesn't. And that's because saving doesn't work in an economy. Now, tell me if I'm, tell me if you can follow this, because one of the reasons people don't understand it is because it's a slightly complicated argument, right? Um, I can save dollars, okay? And I can put them in a bank, they'll earn interest or not, and I can take them out in 20 years' time and use them. The economy can't do that. What an economy is, uh, uh, is uh, the use of resources. Now, what resources do we have? We've got a bit of iron ore, things like that. But our biggest resource by far is people being able to work. Now, if people aren't fully employed, and that means if uh, the money that they're earned isn't being almost fully spent to employ them and other people, um, you can't save that. That's gone. So uh, if we don't have spending uh, about equaling income, um, if the economy as a whole saves, you will not be able to fully use, fully employ the people who are in it. That means you won't get the services that they provide. Now, some people say, oh, well, you know, we're not materialistic. You know, we're always buying too much junk and that's a good thing. I agree with that. But there's lots of things we could spend uh, money on that we could employ people doing. We could employ them to run old folks' homes properly. We could employ them to do better health care. Um, the point is that by, not, by the economy as a whole saving it is harming itself and harming itself each year. It's not, it's not actually saving up for the future at all. That's the, 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 the problem we're in if this high savings rate keeps up. I don't know whether it will because it's unprecedented. I do know, and the government seems to recognise this, that if people are, are saving and not spending, it's up to the government to do the opposite. And that's what it's doing, going hugely into deficit because... Um, you know, aside from the effect on people who are unemployed, we really don't want the economy to be running at, at much less than 100%. We're not spending, and so the government is doing it. How it's going to turn out? I don't know. I mean, taking a sort of glass half full view of that household income savings ratio, the government might say that having all of those savings means it's just a big pot of reserve for as soon as the economy opens up again, consumers are going to get out there, they're going to have masses of money to spend, they're going to be enthusiastically hitting the shops. Do you think that that's a, a good read on this? My favourite subject in school was physics, Martin. And the one bit of physics that caused me to go, hang on, this is a trick. Um, you know, they said energy was always conserved. 
uh, which of course is not really right because um, you can lift something up, that's energy, put it at the top of a cliff or the, the, the top of a shelf and they'd say, oh, it's conserved, it's potential energy. Right, potential. It's got a great potential. I thought this. I thought you are. You, this is just definitional. This, this, um, this is not right. You are fooling me. And that was in year eleven. So it's the same sort of argument, right? Oh, there's the potential for them to spend later. Um, I can see why the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, is making that argument. He, he made that on the day, um, and maybe that's right. Or maybe we will have learned not to spend. As much, um, in a way, in a way, I, I hope is right. Um, much as how I think, you know, a lot of our spending was wasteful. I don't, by the way, ever think we're going to go back to those uh, plane trips interstate that we used to do for business. I can't see it. Um, lots of our spending was wasteful. Um, I hope that we do spend. We do go back to spending, and uh, you know, even more from from this. Uh, this money we've saved up, this great potential we'll have. But it does strike me as a rather um, uh, oddly created um, argument. I haven't lost. I have the potential to win. Well, maybe. Peter, in the piece that you wrote for the conversation, you described this recession as the deepest since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Do you <laughs> think we're in any better shape to come out of it this time around? Oh, yes. Um, the 1930s recession was a mistake. Indeed, it said that all recessions have been mistakes apart from this one, right, which was largely, you know, you put the patient into a coma for a good reason. Um, the mistake then uh, that governments made, local councils made, um, was uh, their income dropped as people lost their jobs, the stock market crash caused it, right? And um, the councils said, oh, hang on, we don't have as much income and, um, well, I guess we'll have to sack some people, or cut their pay. And, you know, governments, state governments did that as well. So um, this led to what seems obvious now but was not obvious at the time, which is them getting even less income, right, uh, because all these people didn't have money, uh, didn't have jobs anymore um, or, or had pay cuts and then needing to cut further and further. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, um, uh, shortly after that, um, uh twigged that this is wrong and worked out something, uh, a theory which was not obvious then but became obvious shortly thereafter, which is that governments should do, that's what I was talking about just before with savings, governments should do the exact opposite to the rest of the, the economy, right? So governments shouldn't cut back. So that, that made the recession Last and last and last, uh, uh, Hoover uh, in the US was uh, in charge and uh, he was like that. Uh, then we had um, Kane suggesting he should do the opposite. Governments were a bit wary, but when the Second World War came, they embraced that. And um, for decades, right through to the 1970s, um, uh, with one exception uh, briefly, around the start of the 60s, um, our income and our spending increased more and more and more. And the Australian government, to make sure it did, ran deficits. With one exception, there wasn't a surplus until, uh, until the 80s. Um, it spent, uh, and what happened was this glorious uh, sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in that it spent, it borrowed to do it, its uh, debt 
shrank as a proportion of GDP because the economy grew because of its spending. Um, people who grew up in the uh, in the sixties and seventies experienced this sense of every year was going to be better than the year before. Every year pay was going up. Every year living standards were going up, and that's because of uh, I suppose Keynes's. Uh, secret source that the governments need to spend. Now, it is said that governments uh, then uh, spent um, when they uh, when they shouldn't have, and it created and it created too much inflation. And you, you had the uh, early eighties recession and the early nineties recession, and that uh, you need some kind of uh, a balance. Well, we don't need a balance now, and the balance was all wrong in the uh, Great Recession. So we have tools, we have an understanding that wasn't available then. And we've got the budget coming up in October. Now, what's that likely to look like, given these kind of numbers? The government has said that it's going to be looking at tax cuts, infrastructure, labour market deregulation, cutting regulations for business, a lot of the stuff which they return to on a fairly regular basis. Are those types of measures going to work based on the recession that we are now in? Well, the government can do whatever it wants. And this is one of these cases where no one, um, you know, no one worth paying attention to is going to say, oh, you shouldn't be spending so much or you shouldn't be cutting tax so much. Um, These will be budget numbers that they won't be embarrassed about because uh, if they show that the economic situation, that the financial situation of the government is, is awful, they'll be able to say, well, that's just the circumstances and we've got to support the economy. And most people would agree with them. Uh, Labor has said it, it, it has opposed in the election, it opposed bringing forward the tax cuts which are due in two years' time. Now it said, look, if the government wants to do it, we're not going to say no. It can do whatever it wants. Um, and almost anything would help. Now, tax cuts don't do much good. Uh, the Treasury... Uh, worked out, uh, looked at research in the lead up to the global financial crisis, which said, if you want people to spend, give them money, they're more likely to spend it. And that's why it had those uh, $800 payments going out. Uh, Tax cuts will do something. They tend to give the money to people who are big savers anyway, who are uh, high earners. They don't tend to do that much. But uh, in the kind of situation we're in, people aren't going to say no. Uh, what else might they do? Infrastructure spending is a traditional means of stimulating the economy, but traditional recessions, and I don't like saying this too loudly in front of my feminist friends, but traditional recessions have hurt women not at all. So if you look at the, in, in aggregate, so if you look at the 1990s uh, recession, uh, female employment increased every month. Um, you know, the, the trend went up. Male employment collapsed. That's a traditional recession and that's the, the kind of thing you traditionally do is say, well, you know, let's um, lay some NBN fibre or, or let's put rail tracks between Brisbane and Melbourne. This recession is different. Uh, this recession, about 60% of the jobs which are being lost are, are female jobs. So you actually need something different. Um, you know, baristas are, are, are good people. Uh, but uh, they're not very good at laying railway tracks. So um, but I don't think, given what the Treasurer said on Wednesday, that he's really twigged to that. He was still talking about, you know, big infrastructure programs. I, I, I really, if you ask me what I think they should do, 
and they might do, it's more of what they've been doing. That is to keep JobKeeper for even longer. Um, they've got to extend this. Uh, the moment businesses really can't be insolvent because uh, they've extended all of the uh, ability for directors to trade while insolvent. And insolvencies are way down, lower than they've ever been. So uh, that's due to expire at the end of September. Now, they've obviously got to extend that or there'll be a wave of corporate collapses. Even, I have been told, insolvency professionals are on, on JobKeeper because the, the, there's no work for the moment. So really extending what they've done is uh, is a good thing and some kind of project that employs uh, women, young people. Um, women uh, tend to uh, work in uh, service industries and lots of the jobs in service industries are transferable, you know. So you could imagine people who have worked for airlines um, working on a uh, program that tested everyone in Australia for coronavirus. Like you could imagine those administrative jobs being reused. That's where they should look, I think, rather than infrastructure, but anything they do will help. It's an interesting manifesto you've put forward there, Peter. Um, I, I, you, you talked about JobKeeper and JobSeeker, and obviously there are plans at the moment to start winding that back. Legislation. Later this month. So it's going to wind down in the three months to December. That's JobKeeper. And then become very low in the three months to March. It's just been passed in Parliament last week. And Job Seeker, or the job, the coronavirus supplement that doubles Job Seeker, that'll wind back in the last three months of the year. That's uh, that's legislated. Yet we've got the state borders, which are going to be closed until Christmas. Uh, all except WA, which is going is to be going, closed even longer. <laughs> to be closed even longer. Um, so does that suggest that? There is because we've got we've got that sort of disparity between those states. Does that suggest that possibly there might be a climb down on the legislation around JobKeeper and JobSeeker, and they might keep it going for a little bit longer? I have not seen an instance of the government not following good advice, um, the federal government um, in this time. And if the advice is that your schedule, legislated schedule for winding down JobKeeper is too severe uh, and will cause damage, I imagine they'll take that advice. Now, I think that advice is likely because they announced the wind down of JobSeeker just before Victoria went into four weeks of stage four restrictions, which will now be at least six weeks of stage four restrictions. It was out of date, the measure that they announced, uh, you know, within days of them announcing it. Um, the economy isn't as strong as they expected it to be. And a lot of businesses, are, it's, it's a bit like the insolvency decision. You know, they, They've put off the decision until the end of September as to uh, whether they can keep employing their staff. Um, if the requirements for getting access to JobSeeker uh, become stricter and the amount of it becomes so low that it's embarrassing to employ uh, you know, <laughs> professional, um, you know, architects and psychologists and all these jobs on, on the amount of money that uh, JobSeeker gives them. Um, and they see no prospect of work. Um, they will make decisions to close down. And that'll put a lot of good people who are useful out of work. 
and sever the connection that we've maintained for six months uh, with their employer. So I think that the government would be receiving advice or at least suggestions that uh, in the circumstances its slowdown was uh, a bit too big. And, uh, you know, I think if, if they're told that loudly enough, they, they might listen um, to that advice. Everything since they announced that in, in July, since they announced that uh, uh, wind down of that support, everything has been sort of worse news than they expected, not better. I mean, just just look at the, the number of coronavirus cases and, and the number of deaths. It's far higher um, in Victoria. It's far higher than uh, th- they would have imagined and that it was at the time. So staying with business for a second, but shifting on to a slightly different topic, the Shadow Assistant Treasurer, Andrew Lee, claimed in Parliament that some Australian companies receiving um, income through the Job Keeper program have paid out millions of dollars in executive bonuses. Jennifer Westacott of the Business Council of Australia uh, was on Insiders yesterday and said that businesses receiving that payment shouldn't be paying executive bonuses, but that paying out dividends to shareholders was a more complex issue. Is there any justification for big bonuses to executive who uh, are in, in, uh, working for companies that are receiving JobKeeper, and what about and what about dividends for those types of companies? I don't think so. And by the way, you, you said claimed in Parliament, and uh, we had a, a piece on this in the conversation. And someone commenting said, "These are anecdotes. They're not anecdotes. If anything is documented in Australia, sent thanks to the uh, Securities Exchange rules." It is what is paid out in dividends and what is paid out in executive salaries. And the other documentation for the same companies shows what they've received in JobKeeper. This is a fact that companies have been paying out in dividends, some of them, the exact same amount of money they got from JobKeeper. Now, JobKeeper was designed, um, the, 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 the key priority was just to get people the money and, and not to have red tape, right? It was, uh, you had to assert that you believed that your income would be down 30%. It depends on the size of the company, uh, what the requirement was. Um, and then you received it for the full six months. That, that was, uh, that was all. And that was, de- it was deliberately allowing more money to slop around than might if you had sort of, proper procedures, because the key thing was to keep people in work. Um, some companies have, give, in fact, uh, one company um, has paid the JobKeeper back because they, they've, they've turned out to have done very well and that they, they just don't like taking money that they don't need. Um, many others have not. Many others have paid it out in bigger dividends or in uh, executive uh, salaries. Um, the whole executive salary question is, uh, is ridiculous, really. Uh, executives get rewarded with bonuses for achieving share market targets, you know, the share price. But um, there's never uh, a way of working out whether it was due to them or just the share market rising anyway or, or, or something else. So they get rewarded for what may not be their own work. And now when times are difficult, they get rewarded for the difficulty of managing um, uh, outside um, circumstances. If you look at Australia's universities, nearly every vice-chancellor has taken uh, a salary cut. Um, All sorts of other big companies have taken uh, a salary cut. 
um, Jennifer Westercott is right um, about the salaries. Um, as far as dividends go, I don't think they should be paying out money to dividends, uh, not at this time. In fact, I don't think companies should at all because uh, in the same way as households have been saving because they don't know what the future holds, a prudent company would hang on to its capital, hang on to what it had earned because it doesn't know what's going to happen. Um, they've, and indeed, the banks have been told by the Securities and Investments Commission to only pay out about half of uh, uh, the excess income, their profits um, in dividends. Usually they pay out a lot more. Um, so I, I don't think that they should do that. Um, the reason why they are is because um, households, uh, retirees, are addicted to dividends. Uh, this was one of the questions in the last uh, election. Um, should the uh, dividend imputation, which gives them a sort of top up on top of it, giving more to those who have, um, should that continue? The, the problem is, you see, people own Commonwealth Bank shares and Telstra shares because of that regular payment of income and they've come to depend on it. And if that vanished, maybe they wouldn't want to own the shares anymore. And I, I can sort of see the, the point of view of Commonwealth and Telstra, which are basically, uh, you know, providers of enhanced pensions, right? Um, I can sort of see their concern that people have come to expect that they will always pay a dividend. And, uh, you know, even if uh, the times aren't right, I can see the uh, pressure on them to do it. So just re returning for a second to that executive pay issue, you talked about a company there that had paid yeah, the paid it back. keeper money back. Is it your view that businesses which uh, turn a profit which may or may not be based on receiving JobKeeper, should do the same? No, because they play by the rules. The rules were, we're giving you this money based on your expectation of a bad time you ha and that even if you have a bad, don't have a bad time, uh, you get to keep it. Now, those rules change from the end of September. So from the end of September, you have to actually prove that your, uh, your business has gone down. That's the rules. It was deliberately... Um, Sloppy is sort of a pejorative word, but that's what it was. You know, it gave money to someone who had uh, a part-time job in a cafe, ended up getting, uh, you know, a, a low full-time salary. Um, they knew the flaws when they introduced it and they didn't mind because they wanted to get money out. So, uh, no, I, I think that's fair enough. I, I think it's a, a very bad look for companies to reward their chief executives for uh, – uh, or reward their chief executives with job seeker money and uh, to pay out dividends uh, to retirees with uh, money that was uh, intended to keep people in jobs. But uh, no, no, I don't, I don't think uh, they should give it back. They were very generous rules and were deliberately generous at the time. And, uh, you know, it's very good. A lot of people in the global financial crisis said, oh, you're paying checks to dead people and you know, people from overseas or people who were born overseas, I could never work out why they shouldn't get money. As far as I'm concerned, they, they should. They've contributed to Australia. Um, but um, the sloppiness was not the point. Uh, you know, they, they said the same thing. The, the uh, Australian newspaper put huge amount of resources into investigating every single school building program. You know, it was one of them not quite right. 
That wasn't the point. The point was to keep tradespeople in jobs, right? The point was to keep people spending. And that's been the government's big priority this time. And we always knew there was going to be money wasted, just as we knew there was going to be money wasted then. It doesn't matter. The, uh, it would be nice if the money was used for something useful. But um, again, John Maynard Keynes sort of famously said that, um, well, you know, he'd prefer that uh, government spending was used for useful purposes. But um, for the point of view of avoiding a recession, it would be just as good for the government to, to bury pound notes in jars and then auction off the right to dig them up, right? It would achieve the same effect. It would get people employed. So um, I, I give the government um, a pass. I give the federal government a pass on, on really everything uh, they've done uh, so far. And if you think about what they were saying before they were elected in 2013, you know, that they uh, they weren't going to have big debt and uh, so on and, you know, saying that, uh, that the Labor-Rudd government spent too much and so on, um, I was always of the view that when it came to the crunch, they would follow good advice, which in a time like this is to spend, um, a, 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 without a thought for the past. And uh, that's what they've done. Peter, thank you so much for helping us comb over what looks like very bad news on the economic front. It's always a, a terrific pleasure to have you on the podcast. We might talk after the budget. We may well. Well, that's all for today's episode of Democracy Sausage. I'd like to give a big thanks to Peter Martin, Katrine Beauregard and Maria Taflaga for joining me at the hot plate here today. But before I let you go, we want your help in getting the word out about this podcast. If you're loving Democracy Sausage, and I hope you are, don't forget to hit subscribe, leave us a rating and maybe even drop us a review. And you can also share the pod on Twitter. Don't forget to tag us. We are at Policy Forum, that's APPS Policy Forum. New listeners take your recommendations very seriously, so we really appreciate your help in getting the word out. And if listening to the episodes alone isn't enough, why don't you join in the conversation with us in our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group? There you can chat with some of the team and our community of listeners, and you also get access to our special Ask Policy Forum series. That's the podcast where you get to ask the questions. So just type Policy Forum Pod into the Facebook search bar and hit join. Mark Kenny will be back on board for the Democracy Sausage Extra this week. And this week's Extra will come out on Friday, not Thursday. And will be a recording of an event that's happening on Thursday night with Mark in conversation with Chris Wallace about her new book, How to Win an Election. You can still register for that virtual event if you want to get a jump on your fellow podcast listeners. And we'll leave a link in the show notes. It's sure to be a cracker. But until then, cheerio for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.